Amen. I have to say, if you've not noticed over the last couple of weeks, we've had some uh, new additions to the praise team and uh, some people playing some different instruments and things like that. And so what a great job they did this morning leading us in worship. And uh, I just have to say, um, if you haven't noticed, Evan Corbett has been playing drums. He's done it a couple times now. And uh, Evan's what, 12? 12? Yeah, so Evan's 12 years old up here playing drums for us. And so uh, what a blessing. I love seeing our young people get involved and plug in and serve. And uh, what a blessing it is. And it also reminds you that, and I pray it would be a reminder to you, that if God calls you to something, it doesn't matter how young or old you are, that you can do what God has called you to do because he's giving you the strength to do it. All right, amen. Uh, Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and uh, we're going to pick up in our series, The Church Is, this morning. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you uh, need a copy of God's Word, there are some Bibles in the seats there around you. Feel free to grab one and to use one of those. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can just turn to page 817. So if you're using a Bible provided, page 817, 817, and the Bible's provided, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to get there in just a moment. Um, I am so excited to continue in our series. We are in week five of our six-week series, um, The Church Is. And our desire in this series, and I'll try to remember to say this next week as well as we wrap up, is we want to know, as the church in the world today, what is our calling? What are we called to be? How are we called to live in the world today as the church? But also, as we gather together as the body of be and to do in the world, what are we invited into by Christ to be and to do as his church, as individuals? And so we've covered a lot of ground in the first four weeks. And so if you missed anything, we encourage you to go back. You can go on our website, northgoodland.org, or on our app, BC, in your app store. And you can find all the previous messages and catch up with those. And we encourage you to do so. But this morning... As we're continuing through here, uh, we are really excited to focus on an aspect of the church that that maybe doesn't get talked about a whole lot, um, and we're excited to do that this morning. But to review quickly, uh, I want to remind us that the church is primarily not about us. The church is primarily not about us. Equally so, the church is not primarily even about the needs of our community. Okay? We have to understand this because this is something that's been being pushed in in churches a lot lately. It's almost as though this kind of the impact you make on the needs of the community is the most important thing the church can do or can be. That is not what scripture teaches. Now, does scripture teach we should take care of the needs of the poor and, and take care of those that are orphans and take care of those that are widows? Of course it does, and we should. And as followers of Christ, that is an evidence of our walk with Christ. But the church, the primary purpose of the church is not at its core, about us or even about the needs of our community. At its core, the primary purpose of the church, the reason the church exists, is for Jesus. is for him and his glory above all things. Because he is, as we established, the head of the church. He is the source of the church. We are the body of Christ. And so everything we do as a church must reflect and, and project everything to Jesus. Put everything on him. And so in our worship, we talked about this last week, in our worship, our worship will strive to emphasize Christ, his goodness, his character, his love for us, the blessings that he provides to us and how we can worship him. And so in all the things, our ministries, our worship, our teaching, all of it is based in Jesus, for Jesus, so that we would grow in Jesus. Amen? That is why the church exists. And unfortunately, a lot of churches maybe because of pressures from wanting to grow, maybe from pressures of just feeling like it's what you're supposed to do, maybe because they've tried it one way and that didn't seem to work, or maybe they saw another church doing this or that model, this or that approach, and and what ended up happening is, oh, we got growth and we grew from that, so let's just copy that franchise model. And for whatever reason, a lot of churches are drifting away from the core reality that the church is for Jesus. We don't do this this morning so that you will leave feeling a certain way. We don't want to create an environment or an atmosphere or an experience where you'll leave saying, man, that North Goodland, what a place to worship. Man, that worship team, what an amazing band. They're so talented. We want you to leave today saying, what a savior. 
and worship him. Now, does that mean we can't thank those who serve? Of course we can. We just did that this morning. We thank those who served food to us, those that made pancakes and sausage and all of that, those that were in the praise team. We can thank people for what they do and appreciate them. But at its core, we don't do any of this really for you or for me. Just so you know, I don't get up here and preach every single week for you. Because if that was my motivation, was just the response I got from people. Now, let me say this. I kind of put a little hesitant on that. Our church is amazing. I've never, I've never been discouraged from people in the church in regards to when they come talk to me about things. It's always encouraging for the most part. Very rarely, very rarely, if ever, has anyone said a discouraging, hurtful thing. Even those that would say critical things, I can appreciate because I knew their heart was in the right place. It was a word of constructive criticism to help. It wasn't a criticism like you are a horrible person and you need to change and all that. So I say all that to say this, but I don't get up here and preach every week because of you. If I did, I would have quit a long time ago. Because there are many Sundays where I leave going, Lord, I don't know if, man, I feel like I just kind of blew that one. Lord, I don't know that I didn't say that the way I wanted to. And, and you kind of, I think you wanted to do this. And I don't know if that even happened. I don't know if the people are getting it because I don't, I don't know. I mean, you guys look great on Sunday morning, but sometimes, sometimes it's hard to read faces. Amen. Somebody asked me one time, I said, do you ever look at the faces of the people you preach to? I try not to a whole lot. <laughs> Only because if somebody next to you says something that you get cracking up on or laughing on, I'm like, Did I, what I just said, was that funny? Because I wasn't supposed to be funny. Is that a joke? That wasn't a joke. And then when I say the jokes, you guys are like this. <laughs> Did you get that? Did you get, I don't get it. Okay. And I don't look at the sound booth because there's nothing good coming out of the sound. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. They do a great job. The point is we do this. Why do we do ministry? Why do our children's workers right now, why are they in junior church? Why are there people serving in nursery? Yes, because they love children and they want to support and encourage families, but they're not primarily doing that for your kids. They're not primarily doing that for you. They're doing that for their love for the Lord. And that's why they're doing that. And so again, it's just a reminder that we are here today for him. We are the body of Christ, family in Christ, gathered as the church for Jesus, founded on the person and work of Christ for the glory of God. And that is why we are here today. So this morning, we're going to be taking it another step farther as far as what is the church? Well, We want to talk about the idea that this morning, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And that is something that is maybe a little uncomfortable or awkward for our men that are here this morning to think about that, to think of yourselves that way, to think of the church as the bride of Christ. But I want to unpack this a little bit this morning. And I pray by the end of this, the men will feel comfortable. Okay, you'll be okay. You'll be all right. Just hold on. So I want to give you a simple but powerful verse that I believe speaks to this union, that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And so we're going to look at a few different passages, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 2 with me. So Paul writing here, listen to what he says to the church. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin virgin to Christ. It says, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray, Father, that as we walk down this topic this morning, as we desire by your grace and your wisdom to understand fuller and deeper what it means to be the bride of Christ, that you would apply these truths to our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would leave changed in the way we came in. I so appreciate that prayer, that we would come this morning in one state of mind, but leave in another, that we would draw closer to you this morning, that nobody here, whether in person or watching online, will go through this service unchanged, unaffected by the word of God. It is not my words that change anyone. It's not my teaching that convicts or converts anyone. It is only the work of the Holy Spirit by the word of God. 
And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work, that you would work in our hearts and minds, that you would give us an illumination of wisdom, that we would draw close to what you would have for us, that we would strive to live in a way that would honor you if we know you as our Lord and Savior, that we would examine the areas of our lives as Christians that need to change and need to be conformed and surrendered to you. And Father, we do pray and lift up if there's anyone in this room right now or anyone watching online that has not personally received you as our Lord and Savior. Maybe they've gone to church before. Maybe they were baptized as an infant. Maybe they've done good things, tried to be a good person. They consider themselves fairly moral. Maybe they've gone in a a little box and they told someone else all their sins and they prayed some prayers on a bead and they've done different things. But they don't know Christ. They've never for themselves repented of their sins and trusted in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They've never done that. They've done a lot of religious works and a lot of religious activity, but they've never surrendered their very lives to Christ in repentance and turning from sin and trusting Christ. And so, Father, we pray, I pray, that if there's anyone here this morning that is not not a believer, not a follower of Christ, I pray that you would work in their hearts and minds. I ask that all the Christians that are in this service would, through the service, be praying the same thing, Lord. That we'd all be thinking and praying for those that may not know Christ, that they would come to know Christ, because it is by the work of the Spirit that you draw men unto repentance, which gives them eternal life. So I pray that you would do that work, and I pray that those that don't know Christ would respond favorably by faith, receiving the free gift of salvation offered to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. I know there's so many that think they're too far gone, they're too sinful. The sin they committed or the thing they've done or the thing they're struggling with is, is just unforgivable. It can't happen. I pray that they would know that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no sin that grace cannot cover because where sin abounded, grace much more abound. So I pray that you'd work in all of this, Lord, by the power of your word and for the glory of your name, that you would draw people to salvation and draw Christians into a closer walk with you. Even though it may be uncomfortable, we pray that we'd conform and surrender. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul is writing here to the church at Corinth. And now remember, this is the church that he founded. This is the church that he started. And so as we talk about this idea, he writes to them and he shares a truth with them, not only about his love and concern for them, but also the reality that he has through the gospel led them to be engaged or espoused to Christ. And I love the opening part of that verse too. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He's not saying I'm jealous over you so that I'm the best one for you. Remember, he established that in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't try to say, I'm the best apostle, I'm the best preacher, teacher, you need to, you know, follow me. He says, no, I planted, right? Some watered, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So he's not saying, I'm jealous over you and I want you to be mine, per se. He's saying, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. What does that mean? I want the best for you in Christ. I want you to have the fullness of what's available for you in and through Christ. And he goes on to describe that relationship as the church. He says, for I've espoused you to one husband. He says, I've I've, I've led you to be engaged to one husband. That's the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this espousal or engagement means that the church in Corinth and the church today, you and I as the church, must be faithful to Christ and only give ourselves to him. Not to the things of this world, And we'll get to that in just a little bit, what that might look like. But we're espoused to Christ. We're engaged to Christ. As a church, we are the bride of Christ. Now, I want to give a word of comfort to all the guys listening this morning. Because I know when I first heard this as a young guy in college, I really was kind of like weirded out by this whole idea of being a bride. This, When the Bible talks about the bride of Christ and the church is called the bride of Christ, the church is only called the bride of Christ collectively, not individually. And we have to understand that. You individually are not the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the bride of Christ. Okay? So it's not saying if a man here is like, that's a little weird, like, I don't want to be a bride. Okay, that's weird. It's not trying to say you need to be effeminized and be a bride. It's saying, no, no, no. It's just a picture. It's an illustration. The church whole... All believers who are in Christ, past, present, and future, are collectively the bride of Christ. So again, this means that men in Christ are not individually a bride. I also need to specify this because it's 2023, and apparently that's not clear anymore. So I want to be very clear on this. Men cannot be brides. 
Amen? Uh, Genesis 1 pretty well establishes that, right? Two, two, men and woman, okay? Man's a groom, women's a bride. But just we won't camp there too long. So this illustration of marriage is used in the New Testament to give us a human understanding of the work of Christ in salvation. So the picture of marriage, the picture of a union with Christ, is a human illustration to help us understand the fullness of what Christ accomplishes in and through salvation. That Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. That there is a union between the two which was purchased by his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. That the union we have with Christ is only achievable, only possible because of what Christ did for us on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection invited us into this relationship that we can know him and be joined together in this union with him. And so the greatest human illustration of Christ's love is marriage. The greatest human illustration of Christ's love is marriage. If you're taking notes, you can follow along on our app. You can go to uh, media sermon notes and find today's notes if you'd like. But the notes actually are pretty simple this morning. We're going to keep it pretty simple because I want to really drive this point home. And I pray that it'd be an encouragement to you as the Lord speaks through it. The greatest human illustration of Christ's love, the, the number one thing that when God looks at all of human creation and tries to help us to understand the fullness of what Christ did for us, he chose by his word marriage as the Best example of that relationship between Christ and his church. What an amazing gift then that marriage is to us from God. Marriage is a gift to us from God. Here's the reality. Marriage is a blessing and should be celebrated. Marriage is a blessing and should be celebrated. It is a glorious union for a man and a woman to become one flesh, to join together as one in Christ and enjoy all the fullness of that relationship. However, in our day and age, marriage is not seen in the same light. In our day and age, marriage is seen as a non-important piece of paper that really doesn't mean anything. Or it has been twisted from God's original intent to extend beyond one man and one woman into sinful application. This is kind of the two extremes our culture lives in right now. Either marriage is irrelevant, doesn't matter, right? It's just a piece of paper. What's the big deal? Who cares? Or it's been extended. Marriage has been extended to mean something that it was never intended by God's word to mean. It's never applied in the way it's applied today. Marriage has only been defined in scripture, by the way, in the vast majority of human history between one man and one woman. That is marriage according to God's word. I know that's not popular to say. I know that's not a culturally appropriate thing to say. But really, if I'm being honest with you, I really just don't care. Because if God's word says it, we need to stand in God's word. Does that mean we're mean to people and and arrogant and jerky and rude? No, we can have conversations. But to have a conversation and show kindness and respect to somebody doesn't mean we cater to their beliefs. We speak truth in love, but we still speak truth. And so here, marriage has kind of gone to the end of two extremes. But really, neither of those are right or good. An you know, unimportant piece of paper, just a legal document, who really cares, it's not a big deal, or sinful application. Neither is right. Marriage was instituted by God and is a blessed union between a man and a woman, intended to lead to a fulfilling life. That is what marriage is designed to be. However, due to the fall of man, And the entrance of sin from Genesis 3 forward, marriage can be difficult, stressful, full of tension, full of strife, infighting, bitterness, arguments, deception, betrayal. And so marriage really in a fallen world, even in the Christian idea of marriage and husband and wife that are both followers of Christ, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Because we're still fallen man, still tempted by sin. We still don't live the ideal way that God would have us to live because we're not perfect. So even in little things or really big things, marriage in today's day and age in our world today can be filled with really great blessings and really difficult seasons. And here's why I say that. Because we need to embrace all of it. 
If you go into marriage or you went into marriage with an expectation that it was going to be this hallmark, picture-perfect, beautiful, romantic all the time, roses everywhere, it didn't take long before you realized something was wrong. Either your expectation was wrong or the person you married was wrong. This is why, and I'm not going to camp here too long, but this is why I very much disagree and you can, you can disagree with me, that's fine. But I disagree with the notion that there is one man and one woman perfect for each other that God designed that way. Meaning that, that when God made you, he made a male or a female to match you at the beginning of creation. And that you just got to find that perfect person. And when you find that perfect soulmate, that perfect match, then everything's going to be great. And if you married someone that didn't match up, that just wasn't your soulmate. That's on God. That's nonsense, and it's not in Scripture. The Bible is very clear. You choose who you marry. You choose who you love. And if you chose to marry someone, that's your choice. It's not God's fault. But we've over-romanticized this. We think, no, 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 there's this perfect person. And we set up these expectations, and we get married to real people who have real struggles and real hurts. And then we found out, wow, this is not what I thought it would be. And it's difficult sometimes. Now, not for Sandra. She's never had to experience any of this, but that's why she's not up here speaking right now. Amen. She'll be like, let me go for 45 minutes, preacher. I'll be honest with you. Can I be really, really transparent with you? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I have not been nowhere near the perfect husband. Not even close. There have been days and seasons where I've dropped the ball so many times. That passage we're going to get to where it says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, failed. Wasn't perfect at that. I pray I'm striving to grow in that. I pray I'm getting better in that area. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. My wife is the greatest example of Christ's grace I've ever experienced. And not because she's perfect, because she's not. Sorry, Barb, Keith, just so you know, she's not. I mean, (laughs) I don't know where it went wrong. You guys did such a good job raising her. I don't know what happened. But that's, you know, marriage requires the reality of saying every day, don't expect perfection. Go into the every day of your marriage saying, how can I serve my spouse today? How can I pray for my spouse today? How can I love my spouse today? How can I forget what they did yesterday and love them anew today? Does that mean we don't talk about difficult things or address sinful things? Of course we do. Those conversations have to happen to grow as a relationship. You don't ignore sin or ignore hurts or ignore failures that where somebody sinned against you. You address those things, but we do it in the right context, the right way. Not so that you cater to the spouse, but that you both point each other to Jesus. You see, marriage is a blessing. Although, because we live in a fallen world with a fallen man, we know it's not perfect. And it does take work. And it does take effort. And I know some of you in this room right now or some of you watching online have experienced things in marriage that you should have never experienced, never should have happened to you. And I understand that. Or maybe you are here and you've made a mistake in a marriage or a relationship and you just think, man, I I wish I wouldn't have done that. First thing I tell you is stop beating yourself up. If you've repented of it and given it to Christ, it's forgiven and you are free from that sin. Learn from it, move forward and encourage others not to do the same thing you did. Be an example. Be a testimony. Don't go back to it like a dog goes back to his vomit. Don't do that. The Bible says. You ever think about that? We go back to our sin like a dog goes back to its vomit. You ever watch a dog eat its vomit? Did you ever watch that and go, man, I'm really hungry right now. (laughs) Mmm, that looks good. That's the picture God gives us when we go back to our sin that we are not bound to any longer. We're free from that. And if you're here and you experience something in marriage that you should have never experienced, My heart goes out to you. I mean, I I wish it wouldn't have happened. But we don't blame God. We move forward in our walk with Christ and we keep our eyes on him. Because we understand in the definition of marriage that we understand today, humanly speaking, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, he is a perfect groom. He is a perfect husband. He has never failed the church once. He has never let the church down. He has never disappointed the church. He has always been faithful and true. You see, we cannot change or redefine marriage because it was not mankind that created marriage. So because we didn't create it, we didn't institute it, we can't change it. That means anything, anything that falls outside of God's design is sin. 
It does not matter what we think or what culture says. I'll give you an example quickly. It just kind of struck us when we were early on engaged. Sandra and I were engaged in uh, Christmas Day of 2004. We got engaged. We got married in August of 05. And so anniversary coming up, just throwing that out there, August 5th. Um, there you go. Um, but I remember when we, you know, I came home from school in May. I got an apartment in my city in June and signed a lease and all of that. And so um, obviously Sandra was staying with her parents and I moved into the apartment right away because I was like, I got an apartment. Why am I going to stay home? Like that's not happening. So I'm going to go move into the apartment. And I remember Sandra worked for a, a woman who was, she nannied for her and stuff. And, and they were talking about the marriage and, or the wedding and, you know, whatever girly stuff. They're all excited. Oh, what color is she going to do? And I'm like, I just want to show up, get married and get out. Like, that's all I really, I mean, like that's, I'm good. She's like, what colors do you want? I don't care. I really don't care. Like, let's just get, let's go. Come on. Um, but they were talking about all that. And the woman said, so, you know, I, you said, John got an apartment. I'm a city there. And she goes, when are you moving in? And Sandra looked at her and didn't even like really think it through. Just went, well, we're getting married on August 5th. So I'm guessing August 6th. Like, I don't, I, that's not really, you know, and the woman kind of looked at her funny. What? What do you mean? You're waiting until after you get married to move in? And Sandra said, yeah. And the woman said this, but what if you get married and you don't really, you know, get along? What if like he leaves the toilet seat up or he leaves toilet paper on the floor or he leaves the cap off the toothpaste or, you know, what if you don't like this or that once you start living together? Once you're married, you're married. That's it. And she goes, I think we'll figure it out. I think we'll be okay. But she was so surprised. And this wasn't a younger person. This would be somebody that could have been a little bit, maybe almost to like, could have been her mom's age. Like could have been somebody like that, that her own generation. We're talking a generation removed. And she was surprised that Sandra and I didn't live together before we got married. And this just shows you the cultural shift. Anything, I'm going to say it again, anything outside of God's design for one man and one woman in marriage to be joined together anything outside of that circle is sin. It's not my opinion. That's not my idea. That's God's word. And I know culture justifies it. Financial situations justify it. We try to figure it out different ways. We're just justifying sin. See, marriage is a gift from God to us, and it needs to be celebrated, the biblical idea of marriage. And if there's anyone here watching online or in person that is living outside of that, I promise you, when you turn from that and do do it the way that God designed it, you will see great blessings and fulfillment and joy and peace when we do it God's way. You see, marriage is a gift from God, but it's also a representation of how we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. So Genesis, I'm just going to give you these references. Genesis 2.24 talks about the idea that a husband will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his bride and they become one flesh. John 17, 21, and these are in the notes as well, talks about that, that Jesus praying in the garden says, Father, I pray that they will be one as we are one, and they will be one with us. So this idea of oneness is spoken of quite heavily. Just as a man and a woman become one flesh when joined in marriage, so we spiritually as the church body become one flesh with Christ. Jesus reaffirmed this principle in Matthew chapter 19, that in marriage we become one, he actually quotes Genesis 2, leaving our father and mother and cleaving to our spouse. Now, I want to share something here with that idea that when a husband and wife get married, they leave mother and father and cleave unto each other and become one flesh. So if you are married here today, can I encourage you, glean from your parents, learn from their wisdom. If you have a mom and a dad that have lived together for many, many years and joined in marriage and went through the ups and the downs. And I, I love talking to couples who reach 50, 60 years of marriage. I love asking them, how did you do that? And they always say something similar. Well, years 22 through 36 weren't great. But we made a choice to be committed to each other in Christ. And then 36 till now, never better. And again, does that mean everything's perfect? No. What do they mean? They mean they've seen the fruit of their effort to put the work in, and now they're reaping the benefits and the blessings of that. 
So if you're here and you're married and you're on the younger side, glean from your parents. Listen to them. Ask questions of them. Have conversations about things so that you can learn and not have to go through things by bumping your head against the wall every so often. Amen? And your parents, by the way, they want to help you. A lot of times they want to help you. They see you bumping your head and they want to step in, but they're trying to do the right thing and say, well, when they ask, I'll see, and then I'll give some wisdom. So if you're married, ask your parents for advice. Talk to them. But you are not called to cleave to your parents. Amen. I hear that that music playing. It must be time to end. I'm just kidding. We are not called as husbands and wives to cleave to our parents. You are not called to cleave to your in-laws. You are not called to let them rule your family. Also, and I actually put in my notes, say lovingly. So know there is love here. If you are here and you have children that are married, preparing to marry, just entering into marriage, do not micromanage their lives or how they raise their children. They are called to cleave unto one another as a new family unit. Give them wisdom, give them insight. But mom and dad, the best thing you can do sometimes is just let your hands off and let God lead. Because I'm telling you, I've talked to couples over the many years of doing ministry where sometimes a well-intentioned in-law or parent has caused great harm in a marriage because the mom or the dad want to have what they think is best and what they think. And by the way, husband and wife, when you have a disagreement and a conflict, let's Let's cleave to one another. We don't need to go get the parents involved. I'm not saying there's not situations that are greater than the everyday things. I'm talking about the everyday little things. When there's big things, yes, seek wisdom, seek counsel, seek input from God's word, spiritual leaders, of course. I'm talking about the everyday little things. Let's not go run to mom and dad just at every drop of a hat. All right? What does the Bible say? Husbands, cleave unto your own wives and become one flesh. Again, as we become one husband and wife, we become one as the church with Christ. So why does God emphasize being one? I believe as in marriage, the longer we are married to someone, we begin to think and act like our spouse. Now, I'm not going to ask you in your experience if that's good or bad. But it's true. It, it's it's really weird to be honest with you. When you, if you know a couple and like you watch them be married for a long time, you start to see similar like mannerisms, right? Like they say things similarly. They start to look alike a little bit. And you're just like, this is weird. Like what's going on here? But why is that? Because you spend so much time with someone, you start to just pick up on things, right? Maybe, maybe if you're a husband here today, you're more, um, analytical with your thinking. You're more kind of black, white in your thinking. It's just this or that. And your spouse isn't that way. Maybe a little more emotional, but you've noticed as you've been married for a while, you have kind of let up on some of that. And now you think a little more emotionally. And now maybe they think a little more analytically or vice versa, whatever it is. Maybe in the marriage, one of you is a very adamant saver. Like you save everything. Like stuff nobody really saves, you save. Because you're just like, well, one day we'll need that. Put it in the drawer. Put it in the garage. Put it in the barn. Put it in the basement. And the other spouse is like, we have no room. Stop it. You're sick. Get help. Okay? Maybe that's you. And your spouse is like, I get rid of everything. Like, I don't keep anything. Did you use that in the last two weeks? No. Garbage. Get rid of it. We haven't used these Christmas decorations since last year. Get rid of them. Why are we holding on to this stuff? So as you think about that, but over time, what happens? You start maybe being a little more generous, a little more giving, right? Not quite as, I got to save everything. And your spouse begins to understand, I need to save some things. I need to kind of think this way. This is true financially with physical things that we have, whatever it is. In a similar sense, but only a little bit different, I believe that's why God emphasizes oneness with Christ. See, in a a human marriage, we take time in our marriage, and and over time, we begin to be willing to be compromising. Uh, We kind of learn from each other. We start to understand each other better. We start to think a little bit more like each other in some ways. We at least understand why the other person thinks the way they do, and we can be more understanding and gracious. 
We start to kind of take on some of the same personality traits, even in some ways. But in Christ, here is the difference. The difference is not that he is becoming more like us and us like him. The difference is, it is that by the working of the Spirit, we are being conformed to his image. So everything in us that needs to change is being changed and conformed to the image of Christ. So he's not becoming more like us. We are only becoming more like him. And it's always for our good and the blessing of others. See, Romans 8, 29 talks about that reality that we are being conformed to the image of the firstborn. That that is the purpose of every good thing God brings out of every situation we go through. So as the bride of Christ, we are one with Christ. We have joined in this union with Christ, and it is a blessing and should be celebrated. But not only are we one with Christ, one day, Paul says, we will be presented to Christ. We, the church, will be presented to Christ. Now, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We're going to unpack that in just a moment. Now, go over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we were in this passage a little bit last week. We're going to read just the whole text, and then we're going to key in on really one key verse for our purposes this morning. So we, the church, will be presented to Christ. Ephesians 5 and verse 22. And again, I know this passage has aspects that are not popular today. But I would suggest that if there are things that are misunderstood and misapplied from this passage, that's our fault, not Scripture's fault. Verse 22. Uh, And also, I'm sorry, we should start. Let's actually start in verse 21. This is all in the confines of worship as well. Worshiping in the Spirit, being full of the Spirit. Here's what that looks like in our lives. Verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So there's equal submission first in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ, coming together as the body of Christ. Now, verse 22 makes a little more sense. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Not the husband is the Savior of the body. Christ is the Savior of the church. So again, we can't take this illustration and apply it in wrong ways. Verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, and actually, if you're really being honest, the husbands have a greater weight in many ways. And that's okay for us as men to feel a greater weight and a responsibility. Amen? We should feel that weight because it's important to understand our role. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man, again, just a human illustration given here, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence, or you could say respect, her husband. Look at verse 27. That he might present it to himself, Christ might present the church to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Quickly, do you notice from Genesis 2, Jesus in Matthew 19, Paul in Ephesians 5, has the definition of marriage changed? No. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they become one flesh. Genesis 2, Matthew 19, Ephesians 5. All the same definition. So so that's why I say we cannot redefine it. 
Scripture from Old and New Testament, it is the same through and through. And I love verse 27, that the whole purpose that he saved us and redeemed us and washed us and cleansed us is that one day we will be presented to Christ as a spotless and pure bride. Paul says, I want to present you. But here in Ephesians 5, he acknowledges it's actually Christ who presents you because Christ does the work of purification. You see, the reason that brides traditionally wear white is to represent purity before marriage, that they were pure before joining in marriage. Men wear plain black tuxes because no one cares what the groom is wearing. <laughs> it's just what it is, and I'm okay with it. Oh, look at the bride's dress. What was the groom wearing? The same thing everyone else was wearing. Nobody cares. You see, we as the church, we have been washed and cleansed by the word of God. And I love the, the way that Ephesians 5 says this, that in verse 26, that he might sanctify, make it holy, cleanse it, wash it clean of sin. And how does he do this? With the word, by the word. You see, the Bible says, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, hey, pay attention to the scriptures that you learned as a child. Give diligence to the scriptures. Why? Because in the scriptures, you learned what it was to be saved. How do we know that we have fallen into sin? How do we know that we need a savior to rescue us from our sin? How do we know that if we refuse Christ and reject Christ, that we spend an eternity in a place called hell? How do we know that? We know that because of the word of God. That the word of God reveals to us our sin. The word of God reveals to us the grace that is available. The word of God shows that through Christ, anyone can be saved. No matter what you've done, where you've been, the things you've done yesterday, even this morning. If you would cry out to him, he will save you. Not because of you. Why? So that he will present to himself a perfect, spotless, pure church. Why? So all the glory goes to him. That's why church isn't really even about us. Because even in the presentation of us to Christ, it's for him, for his glory, and for his honor. You see, the church has been washed pure. As a whole, we have been washed and made clean. If you are in Christ and therefore a part of the church, you are cleansed from your sin. So I have a question for you. Don't answer out loud, but I want to ask you this. Do you see yourself that way? Do you honestly see yourself cleansed from sin, washed, pure, spotless, and holy? If you are in Christ, that's your identity. I understand why people say it, but it drives me a little crazy. You are not just a sinner saved by grace. You are so much more. You were a sinner, have been saved by grace, potentially can sin again. But the Bible says you are a saint, a child of God, the bride of Christ, spotless, pure, and holy. That's your identification before Christ, not some random sinner who happened to be saved by grace. And you have value and worth. And I know we still struggle with sin. I know what people mean when they say that. But stop seeing yourself that way. Because the more you think of yourself as a sinner, the more you'll give in to sin. But the more you see yourself as a child of God, one who's been washed and cleansed, yeah, you're going to struggle with sin, but you're going to say, God, my value, my worth is so much greater in you than in this silly thing that I keep giving myself to. If you find your value and worth in a substance, in material things, in finances, in a relationship, you will be left wanting. Because there'll never be enough drugs, never be enough alcohol, never be enough money, never be enough affirmation from the person that you love. You'll always be rejected at some point. But in Christ, you are always his and you are his. It's a union that can't be separated. See, do you see yourself that way? Let me ask it this way. And again, you don't answer out loud. Do you see your spouse that way if they know Christ? Do you see your spouse as cleansed and washed of sin and pure before Christ? Or do you keep bringing up their sin and keep bringing up their mistakes so that you feel better and they feel worse and you have control and authority over that? Do you live in agreement with your standing before God is cleansed? Do you live and strive to sin not? Do you treat your spouse as though they are cleansed or do you constantly bring up their past mistakes and sins? Again, I'm not saying we don't address sin in the life of our spouse and deal with it. However, often in marriage, when somebody gets upset with something, it can snowball into a laundry list of their failures intending to make us feel better or justified and then feel worse. You see, we are going to be presented to Christ as a spotless lamb. 
And lastly, as his bride, as his church, we await his return. Go with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Go back just a few books in the New Testament there. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We await his return. Amen. And I believe it is at any moment. John chapter 14. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. That word troubled means anxious. Let not your heart be filled of anxiety. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's the key. Did you hear it? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, in the way, you know. Thomas saith unto him, and he's not doubting Thomas, by the way, but Thomas wanting to make sure and know the way. I love Thomas' asserted nature to say, no, 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 no. I, I want to know the way. I'm not guessing at this thing. I want to know the way. What is the way? He says, we don't know whether thou goest. And how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, not a way. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Not by good works, not by being moral, not by some other religious system of works or feel-good Christianity. It is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that we will have entrance into his kingdom. And I want to kind of camp on one aspect of John 14 for a moment. He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We are awaiting that moment when he returns and brings us home. Now, some of us will go to see him. We will be taken home early. But there's a day that he will come and he will rapture his church. He will take his church home. In Jewish culture at the New Testament times, including even in the Old Testament times, a bride and a groom would be engaged and committed to one another. They would have an espousal period. They would be engaged. They would not join in union. And I'm going to use that word for purposes of, of just ears in the, in the room. They would not be joined in union until their actual marriage. But their espousal period would begin. And the moment that they would be espoused or engaged to each other, they were seen as married in the culture. That means you are committed to this person. Now, what the husband would do is he would travel away and he would build a home. He would establish a home. He would make a life for the family. Then he would return take the bride to be married, and then go home to spend the rest of their lives together. This is why Joseph was so shocked to see Mary was pregnant before they were joined in marriage, because culturally they were practically joined in marriage apart from being joined in that union. And so when Mary shows up pregnant, this causes a lot of controversy because she should have been faithful to Joseph alone. And again, what a picture that we see here that Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself. He is coming again to receive us unto himself. This is what Jesus meant when he was asked in Matthew 9, 14 through 15, why his disciples did not fast as the Pharisees fasted. His response was simple. When the groom is present, there is no need to fast and mourn. However, when the groom is taken away, then they will fast in his absence. One author said it well. Just as there was a betrothal period in biblical times during which the bride and groom were separated until the wedding, so is the bride of Christ separate from the bridegroom during the church age. Her responsibility during the betrothal period is to be faithful to him. The sin, I believe, that breaks the heart of God more than any other, warned against constantly in the Old Testament and even in the New, is the sin of idolatry. When we place something else in the place only God is worthy of in our lives, we are committing spiritual adultery. We think it will fulfill something that we are missing, and yet every single time, both spiritually and in our physical relationships, every single time you make that trade, you will be left wanting. It will cause damage and destruction and chaos. It will never fulfill you. I don't care what the allure is to it. I don't care what temptation you were given. Spiritually and in our marriages, adultery will never fulfill. It will never fulfill. It will only destroy. And so in Christ, 
If we are in Christ and we're called to be faithful to him, but we put our eyes on something else in the world or we start pursuing a different love, we are committing spiritual adultery. And the result is we will always end up empty and damaged. So what encouragement can I give you today as far as walking with Christ in this way? Don't make the trade. Don't trade what you have in Christ for what you think you're missing in the world because you are not missing what you think you're missing. You have all that you need in Christ. One day we will see Jesus face to face and as his church, we will be officially joined in the full union with him. There will be a great celebration which is known as the marriage supper of the lamb. He has prepared a place for us and there he is and we will be with him for eternity. We are one in Christ, joined together because of Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. And as you bow in prayer, I want to just invite you to a couple things this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation in just a moment. And I want to ask you, just as you begin to pray, to consider some things. Some, I, I pray some questions that maybe would help you in making a decision to surrender or make a change by God's grace in an area of your life. So I'm just going to ask that you begin to pray right there where you are. First and foremost, I want to ask, just between you and the Lord, no one else is looking around. It's just between you and the Lord. Do you know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? Have you received Christ for yourself, surrendering to him, repenting of your sins, and trusting in Christ? If you have, then the Bible says that as the church, you are called to be faithful to him and to him alone. So my first challenge is, if you don't know Christ, to receive Christ today. It's as simple as crying out to him, turning from your sins, asking him to save you. And he will save you. He will grant unto you eternal life. There'll still be bumps in the road. There'll still be difficulties. There'll still be trials and and difficult seasons, but he will be with you in every storm. So do you know Christ? Secondly, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, have you put something else in first place? Have you put something else above him in your relationship with Christ? You might say, no, of course not. But if we really sat back and evaluated our priorities, our time investments, how we view our decisions day to day, do we really live practically in a way that shows that we've elevated Christ to the greatest priority in our lives, that we are faithful to him above culture, above convenience, above comfort, above fear and doubt? If you would say this morning, you know what, uh, Pastor John, I, I... I feel I've done that. I've put something else in that place. I feel I live that way practically from time to time. Maybe you would come in just a moment and bend a knee and say, Lord, help me to be faithful to you alone. Give me the strength to be faithful. And lastly, this morning, I just want to encourage, if you're here today and you're married, maybe your spouse is a believer. Maybe your spouse is not a believer. If they don't know Christ, maybe you'd come and say, Lord, would you lead my husband or my wife to Christ? Would you... Do that work in them. If you both know Christ, maybe you would join together in prayer and say, Lord, help us to live in a marriage that would honor you, keep you first, please you above all things. Forgive us where we've fallen short. We've all fallen short. And help us to strive to to get our eyes back on you and to see your uh, passion and your desires emphasized in our marriage and in our lives. If you have children in the lives of your children, maybe you'd begin to pray over them. Lord, help us to lead them and guide them in a Christ-like way. And lastly, if there's anyone here this morning that is struggling in this area of marriage and relationships, you're in a difficult season, maybe you would come and pray and say, Lord, would you work in this? Give me wisdom and guidance. Help me to honor you. Whatever God is doing, I just pray, and my prayer all week has been that he would lead whatever needs to happen this morning for his glory, for his praise. Father, would you work in these things that we might, as your church, align with that identity that you've called us to, to be pure and spotless in Christ. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you have done. Your salvation is glorious, that you would join us in union with you, that we could become more like you. Father, work in all of this. Give us wisdom and guidance, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we're lighting a song of invitation? Would you come and pray? individual, maybe as a couple, as a family, whatever it is that God is leading, would you just pray and seek him as we continue to honor him and worship him this morning through song?